and you can be seated. How exciting it is to worship together, to bring our voices and our hearts together, and to, to rejoice in that knowledge. He reigns above it all. How many of you are encouraged by that? Because I look around and things look a little chaotic from time to time. I'm the only one? No, no, you know what I'm talking about. And to know that he reigns above it all, and he's got 2023 in his hands, and he's got our lives and our families and our community and our church in his hands. I'm excited to open the Word of God uh, for the first time in this new year with you. Uh, We are in the book of Nehemiah. Our series has been called Building Back Boulder, and uh, we have been looking at the book of Ezra uh, last fall, and now we move into Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah and Ezra are the same book in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, It's just one piece, but in our English Bible, it is divided uh, into these two different books. Ezra wrote the Ezra part. Boy, that makes sense, doesn't it? And Nehemiah, guess what he wrote? The Nehemiah part. Okay, good. We're, we're getting with this. And they both were leaders in an overlapping time. Uh, they worked together. Uh, we, we talked together. We'll talk about, uh, about Zerubbabel, but he was before this time. Uh, but Ezra and Nehemiah are both uh, about rebuilding Jerusalem, uh, the city of David, and the temple after total destruction in 538, uh, 586 B.C., Just total, absolute destruction uh, by the Babylonians. And so then, uh, these years later, the return to Jerusalem comes, uh, beginning in 538 B.C. And the return came in three waves, over 93 years. I got to thinking about that, about how long that is. My dad is now 97. That's a long time. 93 years is a long period of time for these waves to be coming. First 50,000, and then 5,000. And we don't even know how many come in this last wave that we're going to be studying over the weeks that are ahead. You know, maybe 500. It just seems to go down each time uh, the number that comes. So Zerubbabel led uh, the first return in 538. And then Ezra led the second return. We'd studied that in the fall. And then Nehemiah is our study now. He led the third return, uh, which was 93 years after the first start. So he and Zerubbabel, they never chatted about anything that we, that we could know about. I mean, they could have possibly met if Zerubbabel went back to Babylon. But we don't hear much more about him or from him. Each one of these leaders had a specific mission. Zerubbabel... Uh, was the builder guy, and he came to rebuild the temple. And, uh, and then Ezra, he came to restore worship. And then Nehemiah rebuilt the walls and the gates. That's what we're going to be engaged in for a while. Now, just to start learning a little bit, we remember Zerubbabel because when he came back, there was nothing but what? Rubbable. So say that with me. There was nothing but rubbable. And get used to saying that sort of thing. It's helpful for us to have a, a device for remembering things in a solid way. Now, Nehemiah, when he came back, the walls were knee-high. So we call him Nehemiah. Say that with me, Nehemiah. Now, you might say, this sounds a little bit silly. No, it's not silly. It's how we can learn Bible. And actually, those specific devices come from a seminar called the Walk Through the Bible Seminar. And I'm so excited. We've told you that it's coming here April 29th. And you need to mark your calendar. 
I've done this seminar twice in my decades of ministry, all right? And I still remember so much of it. It will orient you to the whole Bible, the whole, all of the books of the Bible, all of the events in each book of the Bible. You're going to learn it in one day. You don't look convinced. I, I promise you that you will, and it'll be fun. It's interactive. You, you join in, and it's a great, great uh, seminar for us to bring here. And uh, I hope that you will be here. Don't say, well, I'll do it the next time. Well, it may be 10 or 20 years before it comes again. It's, uh, it's something that's a, a big investment for our church. Our board decided to invest in this so that we can kind of know what's going on. My goal for you is that when you open the Bible, you will not feel lost in space somehow, okay? Uh, because sometimes people are like that. You say uh, 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 one of the books of the Bible, and they say, I, I don't, I, they don't even look because they're not sure they don't want to be embarrassed. You're going to learn how to find your way around in the Bible in a, in a really uh, wonderful, impactful way. So I'm excited about that for us. We have these three leaders, Zerubbabel the Builder, and we have Ezra, the, he's a prophet, priest, leader, and he becomes a governor. And now Nehemiah is a leader and preacher, and he will become a governor. Now, he did not become the governor in the way that we often think about it. Uh, he's going to become governor, but he didn't go to law school and then run for mayor of one of the big cities and then kind of find his way up to being the governor. That's the way we think about it. He actually started as a servant in Babylon, a house servant in Babylon. That was an important house. He was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Let's say that name, Artaxerxes, okay? And he was cupbearer to the king. He became a preacher and a reformer. Uh, and then he went on from there to be very powerfully influential in Jerusalem. He, he worked along with Ezra during the revival that we talked about in the book of Ezra. Uh, we think he was probably brought up, brought up by pious uh, Jew, Jewish parents in a Jewish home because he has a knowledge of history and the law uh, and the Jewish people. But this position, we, we want to be sure that we understand it. The cupbearer for King Artaxerxes was much more than a household servant. Um, it was really one of the most trusted and responsible people uh, in the kingdom around the king. And if you think about it, if you understand it, you'll see why. He was trained from an early age, and he was trained specifically uh, to be able to make sure things were safe. Uh, his primary duty was not pairing the right wine with the right food, or checking the vintage, or, or choosing the body and bouquet of the wine. That, that wasn't it. Now, he may have done some of that. His main chief task was to make sure the king did not get poisoned. Yeah. You have one job, don't mess it up, because it's really, really important, uh, and, and the rest may have come with it. Um, he was trusted so, so much. He was trusted, actually, to be admitted to see the king while the queen was present, and that was a huge thing. Uh, it was an exceedingly high level of trust. It was, it was basically unheard of, and we see that in uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, in the next chapter, we'll study next week. Uh, basically, men were not allowed in the presence of the queen unless they were a eunuch. And I'll explain that some other time in a different, in a different message, okay? We'll study that. But uh, he was allowed in the presence of the king and the queen. It was a big deal. 
Why is that a big deal? Because God's going to use it. God's really, really going to use it. And the a big truth that we want to make sure that we get a hold of is that God uses everything. Why don't we say that out loud together? God uses everything. Sometimes we, we think, uh, I don't know, why am I in this place? Why am I in this job? Why, why am I in this situation? God uses everything. Why did I have these things going on in my life when I was growing up, these difficulties that I had? God uses everything. There's a, a verse of scripture in the, in the New Testament that we often quote, and it says, and we know that in some things, God works for the... I messed that up. Okay, I'll, I'll say it again. We, and we know that in most of the things, God... No, no, no. Well, well let's read it, read it out loud together, because I keep messing it up. Let's read it out loud. Make sure we get it, okay? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. How many of you love God? I'm looking for hands, okay. How many of you are called according to his purpose? Yes. And he works in all things for the good, for his intentions in your life. He's working in that direction. I mean, there are so many examples. Think about how God placed Moses in the house of Pharaoh as a little baby, growing up in the house of Pharaoh. That's the guy he's really going to bump heads with. This is the guy that's going to enslave the Jewish people. Why is he growing up in that household? Oh, it was so important. So he would understand uh, Egyptian ways, so that he would understand the language, so that he would understand engineering and all these kinds of things. And he might have complained, you know, uh, about it, but he didn't. God placed David as a shepherd. That was kind of the lowliest thing as a shepherd. But he learned how to care for sheep, how to care for a flock, and how to defend them. Boy, did he learn how to defend them. He becomes a warrior by serving as a shepherd. See, God uses everything. And God placed Nehemiah as a cup bearer to the king, and there was a purpose in that. We don't hear him complaining. He could have. What am I doing here? Well, what am I doing? I'm just a servant in this house. No. He was well-placed, and we're going to see that as this story unfolds. Nehemiah, he's going to later become the governor, and, and he's learning in that household to be knowledgeable about organization and construction and administration. He's going to need all the All these people are coming in, and he's learning, he's learning, he's learning. If we'll open our eyes and our ears, we'll, we'll learn the things that God wants us to know. And God wants to use to equip us. So that's what is going on. As we open this book, we open a chapter one, and we learn that Nehemiah gets word that there is trouble in Jerusalem. Big time trouble. And uh, Nehemiah one, beginning verse one, I'm going to read. It's, uh, you'll find it on page 398. Uh, in the Bible Center out there, and uh, it'll be on the screens, of course. But if you don't own a Bible, I wouldn't, please, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, take one of those Bibles home and change that in the year 2023. Write your name, write the date in it, and make sure that you have a Bible in your hand. You need it. Uh, I need it. We need it. So we're Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. 
And now it happened in the month of Kislev. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Let's stand and let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these moments in the history of your people that are so powerful. I thank you for Nehemiah and that his heart and his life and his ears were listening for you and for your guidance and that you placed him at just the right place in just the right time. And I pray that we might hear out of that exactly what you want for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Great trouble and shame. <laughs> that's, that's strong. Those are strong words. Uh, um, 
that are describing what was once the greatest, one of the greatest cities of the whole world. It was a, a place where there had been uh, one of the great uh, uh, wonders of the ancient world, the temple. Uh, and those words are so very strong. The Hebrew word ra means evil affliction. What, what's happening there, he asks his, his brother and, and the others who came. Uh, uh, affliction, calamity, distress, misery, mischief, and shame. Uh, kerpa is the, is the Hebrew word. Disgrace. It's, dis, it's a disgrace now. It's a shame. It's a reproach now. And so what had gone so very wrong? We, we might not really understand it. They had rebuilt the temple. Wasn't that good? And the temple was operating for some time, but there was more to this. Essentially, the city of David, uh, home of the temple and the great I am, was now a joke. Now, why, why would I say that? It's because... Um, it's, even though the temple had been rebuilt and, and it was there and it was honoring uh, to God, uh, the walls and the gates were, were broken down and burned. And in the ancient world, a city was not a city if it did not have walls. It, it, was, a dis, it, it was a nothing. If, if you go to Israel today, and we often will visit um, Jericho, and they will uh, make the claim that Jericho is the oldest uh, city in the world. Now, what they mean is they don't really know that it's the oldest city in the world, but it has the oldest definable walls in the world that have ever been found. And so cities are defined by walls. If there's no walls, it's not a city. And so that's what, what we're talking about here. So without walls, this place is a disgrace. The walls defined the city and made it a place of safety, a place of protection. Walls and gates then were critically important. Why? Walls were for defense. Um, it was the primary defense technology in times of war. It was it. I mean, they didn't have anything else. You put up walls to try to defend the city. And gates were a matter of access. They put a lot into that technology. I mean, the, you can study some of the walls. The walls in Jericho were amazing. There were three different levels, three different layers of walls, you know. We, we see moats and things like that. It's a fascinating thing, the way that they built walls in the ancient world. And then the gates were just as amazing. They provided access uh, for supplies and travel and commerce. And they were intended to deter a direct attack. Well-designed gates uh, you couldn't get into. They could be guarded very well, um, and, and you couldn't come straight into them. If you go to Jerusalem and you look at some of the gates, they're amazing because you approach, and then you have to turn, and then you have to turn again. You couldn't gallop into the city of Jerusalem uh, for most of the years, but here, it, they're all broken down. They're burned, and, and it's a terrible state. They would not a- allow that direct entry. Now, gates also... Uh, served as a meeting place. Uh, they served as a place where the elders would gather. If you wanted some wisdom, if you wanted, boy, I need some advice about my kids or my marriage or something that's going on, you would go to the city gate and talk to some of the f- guys that hung out there and find some wisdom. And, and it was also a place where sometimes a magnificent gate would function as a kind of regal place of judgment. And we see that. We found that in archaeology where there would be a place where the king would even come and sit for a while and make judgments there. But the report comes back that these walls and gates of Jerusalem were in shambles and they were offering none of the protections that they should have been offering. 
So Nehemiah was learning about this bad news. And and then we see the response of Nehemiah, uh, beginning in verse 4. He says, as soon as I heard these words, it was just so grievous. It was like a punch in the gut. He says, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. I mean, it's hard to imagine some, what would hit you that hard? And this was a huge deal to him to hear that Jerusalem, the city of the great king, Jerusalem, the city of David, you're kidding. The walls are broken down. The gates have been burned. He sat down and he wept. He mourned for several days while fasting and praying. And then he prayed. And this is a marvelous prayer. You know, sometimes in scripture we study through and we'll see this uh, prayer and it's really a wonderful thing to pray scripture. This is a great one. And it, at the end of, uh, of our study, I want us to pray through a paraphrase of this prayer. But it's an amazing prayer. There are four elements to it. He begins with praising. He says, you are the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. That's why when we gather in here, the first thing we do is we praise. We have a praise team. And so I, I always want to get here right away because I need to praise. I, I, I need that. I need to lift my heart before the Lord and, and to, to bring adoration before him. You are the great and awesome God, the one who keeps covenant, and I'm declaring that, who keeps steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments. It's what we were just talking about in Romans 8, 28. And, and then he says, be attentive to your servant. Hear, hear me. I'm bringing praise to you. I mean, we say, inhabit the praise of your people. And then the next part of the prayer is confessing. I come confessing the sins of the people. Uh, We've done terrible things in our history. And he says, I include myself. You know, sometimes we want to say, you know, the people have been really sinful. Well, it's not me, but the people have been. No, (laughs) we need to confess our sin, our part in that sin. And so he says, I, I, myself and my father's house, we have acted corruptly and not kept your commands and statutes. We've lived in a way more like the world around us than the ways of God. And we, we know what that's about because we see that happen in our own culture. Then there's a time of remembering. He says, remember the word that you commanded. Now, God doesn't forget. How many of you know that? God doesn't forget about something at all. But it's a call to remember, not because God forgets, but it's a declaration that Nehemiah remembers. I remember what you said. You said, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. I remember that. I've studied that. And you also said, God, I'm remembering this. I know you don't need to be reminded, but I'm remembering this. If you return to me and keep my commands, I will gather them to the place I have chosen. That's a promise. That's a covenant promise. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed. We are the ones that you have redeemed. You brought us out of slavery. You brought us out of Egypt. Now bring us back to this place. And finally, petitioning. Uh, Nehemiah calls upon uh, the Lord to hear his prayer as one who delights to fear the name of the Lord. You know, uh, it's a powerful statement. To delight to fear the name of the Lord. That means to reverence, not, not to, to tremble in fear before him. Give your servant success and mercy, he prays. That, that's, that's what we were talking about earlier in the service, success and mercy and blessing. A plan to respond must have been stirring in his heart, 
Because his next words really point forward to what we're going to see in the next chapter. And he ends with these seven words. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. It's almost as if it suddenly dawns on him, like the light comes on. Now, I think I get it. What you've been doing all this time, where you have placed me, how you have been preparing me, what you've been doing. And that's a marvelous thing in our lives when we say, I don't know why I've been in this situation. And suddenly it dawns on us. This is why God has been preparing you. God prepares us through all these things that go on, the experiences of our life. He uses the things that you have journeyed through by faith to help others, to heal others, to share with others. And that's what he's doing right here. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. It's going to be really significant in chapter 2. Next week we'll get into chapter 2, and it's fabulous. I hope you'll be here. Nehemiah is going to see how that placement in the court of the king is going to help him restore the city of David. You know, I was studying this this first chapter, and I found myself reminded of a character from the, the musical Music Man, Professor Harold Hill. You remember this guy? You Only two of you? You remember this guy? If you don't remember this guy, you need to go to the show, and it's going to be at the end of this month. Uh, it opens January 27th at the Cocoa Village Playhouse, a great cast. It's such a great show. You need to go and see it. We sell tickets here that will benefit the youth, so a little plug there. But, he, you know, he comes into town, and he's got his, uh, his scheme going on, Uh, But he starts talking about the trouble there in River City. So I've I've just adapted this a little bit, okay, uh, to describe uh, what it might sound like (coughs) today or what it might sound like in Nehemiah's time uh, if Nehemiah were to take this on. And it might sound something like this. Well, either you're closing your eyes to a situation you do not wish to acknowledge or you are not aware of the caliber of disaster indicated. By broken walls and burned down gates in your city. You got trouble, my friend. Right here. I say trouble right here in David City. (laughs) Why, sure, I'm a cupbearer. Certainly mighty proud to say. I'm always mighty proud to say it. I consider that the hours I spent with a cup in my hand are golden. Help you cultivate horse sense and a cool head and a keen eye. You got trouble, my friend. Can you say, oh, we got trouble? Okay, okay, that's a little much. All right, okay. You got trouble, my friend. Right here, I say trouble right here in David City with a capital T and it rhymes with P and that stands for protection, walls, gates. Okay, I decided as a New Year's resolution, I'm going to stop. (laughs) I'm going to stop my habit of rapping and go back to musical theater, okay? But you know, in fact, the professor, uh, Harold Hill, was a flim-flam artist, okay? Uh, He was a band leader trying to steal money from the town. Um, The thing is, then he falls in love. I won't tell you the whole story, but you should go and see it. Um, But he had a certain wisdom in common with Nehemiah that you have to recognize trouble when it comes. You have to recognize denying trouble, denying that the walls are broken down, Makes no sense that the gates are not workable. You need some horse sense and a cool head and a keen eye. So Nehemiah had all of that, and he was the real deal. I mean, he is such a pure heart. He loves the Lord, and he loves the city. He loves the city of David. He loves Jerusalem. 
And we learn some things in this study. We learn the truth is that we live in a world of boundaries, borders, walls, and gates. He was the real deal. <laughs> and, and I want to talk a little bit about that because it, it's going <clears> to <throat> be part of the study as we go on through Nehemiah. A boundary, what is that? It's a dividing line that marks limits. Uh, a border is uh, a defined separation between political or geographical areas. A wall is a structure. It's a structural rampart built for defense against invasion. And a gate, what is that? It's an opening in a wall that regulates access, entry, and exit. Each one is important and each one is different. And we're going to be talking about them as we go on. A boundary is a set limit of permission. You know, sometimes you cannot go into a restricted area without the right badge, without the right pass. There's a permission that's required to pass the boundary. And so we, we have personal boundaries. And that may be overused in some ways. I've seen personal boundaries described in a way that really means... I don't want to have to deal or engage with you, so I'm going to set a boundary. And I don't think that's what we would want it. The Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible talks about engaging. Uh, But we need to know that there are boundaries, and we need to have boundaries because they are protective for us. I have boundaries in my life, and and I'll just name a a couple of them. Uh, One boundary that I have is I don't meet alone with women who are not my wife or my daughters or daughters-in-law, my family. Without people nearby, or the door open, uh, or uh, the shades open. I'll meet in an office in that sort of way. I'll talk to, uh, to anybody. I'll talk to anybody. But that's a boundary. It's an important boundary. It's called the Billy Graham rule. Uh, and uh, many pastors uh, practice this. It's a way of protecting against any accusation. It's a really important thing. I, I don't ride in a car or meet for coffee or lunch with a woman who is not my wife or uh, a member of my family. Raising our kids, we had family boundaries, and, and maybe you have too. Our kids are grown now, uh, but uh, our family boundaries, we, you know, you don't spend the night in homes that we don't know. We need to know those people. I've been invited to go spend the night. No. Well, why? We don't know those people. We don't know them. Well, they're really nice people. I'm sure they are, but I need to get to know them. I need to know this, this place. We don't watch R-rated movies in our home. Uh, we still don't watch R-rated movies. And we don't want our children going to a home where they do watch R-rated movies. When, as the kids were growing up and they got to driving age, uh, it was just our way. You don't get a car. Um, you are allowed to drive one of my cars. And it was really important for my kids to understand that. Uh, one of my kids would come in and they'd say, Dad, I'm going to go take my car down to wash it. And I'd say, excuse me? <laughs> what car is that? <laughs> and they knew exactly what I, oh, oh yeah, I, I want to go down and, and wash your car that I get to drive. Because that is important to understand because you can not drive it all of a sudden. It's not your car. You always wear a seatbelt. Uh, I always know where you are. You don't take a car to some place that I don't know about. And for all my kids, for the first year, you were not allowed to use any music. If I came and got in the car and there was music playing when I turned on the car, you were grounded. Because that's one of the main ways that uh, an inexperienced driver can have a terrible accident. They're messing with the music and all that. We need personal boundaries. And there's a lot of different ways that those are defined, personal boundaries. 
some, some will say, well, here's my personal boundary. Uh, I don't sleep with someone on the first date. I wait until the second. <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing. <laughs> that's, that's a worldly boundary, and it may sound good on a magazine cover or something like that, but that's not a biblical boundary. Others will say, well, I don't move in until we are engaged. That's another worldly boundary. That's not what the Bible would teach us. Um, how, how about we don't do any of that until we are married? That's a biblical boundary. You see, I, I, another way to say it is you don't get the privileges of being married to me until you are married to me. I remember one of the youth teachers that we watched at camp uh, was great, a great uh, woman, and she said, no ringy, no dingy. <laughs> And the kids all remember that. But a border is a defined separation. It's a defined separation between two entities. And you can't cross the border without permission or a passport. And there's really a border between God's people and the world out there. And most of it's defined in the Ten Commandments. It's how we are different. It defines the difference between the world and us. And it's not to be uh, self-righteous or anything like that, but it's a way of saying we are kingdom people and we are different. Is there, you know, I'm going to ask this question. Is, are we any different from the world that is around us? There's a border between believers and unbelievers. You know, Paul described it in his letter to the Corinthians. Uh, he said, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is, don't be bound together. Uh, with an unbeliever, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, uh, the devil? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? It's really important for us to understand that. Uh, we do not partner in business with an unbeliever. I can't tell you how many times over decades of ministry I've had someone come in and say, I'm in such a mess. What happened? Well, I, I had a partnership. I had a business partnership with this person. And they're a really great person. I thought it was really terrific. But they're not a believer. And now we are in big trouble. Sometimes criminal trouble. I've known people that I had to go to trial. Sit in, in the trial with them because they partnered with an unbeliever. And it applies also, do not marry an unbeliever. Now, we don't want to misunderstand this. If you're married to an unbeliever, you seek to win them. Uh, but the best advice, I've talked to many, many people who have married unbelievers. There's a lot of them that would say, let me just tell you, young man, young woman, you, you need to be careful and not marry an unbeliever. It created great pain. Now, I also... I know people, I talked, I've talked this week with people who they married an unbeliever and after years of prayer, they came to the Lord and God used that. What did we say a few minutes ago? God uses everything, right? So God can use that situation. The Apostle Paul said, no, you don't divorce that person, okay? But you try to win them. I mean, these are some of the boundaries that are there. I do not sleep with my wife or my husband until we have the passport, the covenant marriage ceremony to cross that border. That's a biblical border. Now, a wall is even stronger. It's a prevention against invasion. 
And, and, and walls are non-negotiable. Walls are immovable. You try to move that wall, I mean, you're, it's, walls don't move. These were stout walls. And some things in our lives have to be immovable. Um, you know, I talked to someone recently and they said they had a friend that wanted to do a business deal. But in order to do the business deal, it involved a loan and they had to say under affidavit, oh, I'm a relative of yours. And they're not. And they said, no, I cannot do that. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie on an affidavit and say I'm a, I'm a member of your family when I'm not. I've talked to people over the years who said, I came to this impasse where my, my company was saying, you have to lie about this. You fill out that report. You make that report. There's places where we just have to say, no. I, well, you're going to lose your job. Well, then I'll lose my job and God will take care of me. But I'm not going to go out from under the covering and protection of God. If our company says you need to cheat, no, I, I'm not going to cheat. company says you need to steal. No, I'm not going to steal. See, we're defined that way. Walls are built brick by brick, stone upon stone. And the bricks and the stones are word of God. God is our rock, uh, and, and we want that protection around us and that security around us. The word helps us to recognize the enemy when he approaches. It's the word that powerfully defends us and repels the enemy. You know, the interesting thing about the ancient walls is part of the defense was if they came up to the wall and they're trying to climb the wall and batter the wall, what do they do? <laughs> they bring a rock, <laughs> And you'll find a rock dropped on you from the top of that wall. It was one of the defenses that was commonly used. And, and we need to understand that the word of God is our rock. When we memorize the word, when we study the word like you are right now, when we take the word into our hearts, then we have it prepared for defense. That's what Jesus did. You think that sounds a little weird? That's exactly what Jesus did. He used the word of God to clobber the enemy. The enemy came and he said, well, if you are truly the son of God, well, then you, why don't you turn this stone into bread? Excuse me. I've got a rock right here. It's word of God. It says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Bam. Right in the forehead. <laughs> and the enemy came and he said, well, why don't you go up to this high place and cast yourself off and make a big scene? And he said, no. Uh, here's a, another rock here. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Why don't you uh, worship me? And then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And, and he came back with another rock that said, you shall worship the Lord your God only. And the devil went away. You remember that? It's so important for us to understand. I was studying this and I guess it may be kind of strange you'll think. But it reminded me of that scene in Home Alone, Lost in New York. Do any of you remember that? Kevin's up on the roof. And here come Marvin, Harry, and, and Kevin starts throwing bricks off the roof. <laughs> and he, hit, he hits Marv three, four times in the forehead. Uh, don't try this at home. <laughs> and, you know, I've heard trauma specialists say no one could have survived what, what Marv went through. But, you know, we need to understand we have an enemy in this world and we need the word of God. We need to have our hand on the word of God and be ready. Now, what is a gate? A gate regulates access of entry and, ex and exit. 
the most solid wall in the world has to have a secure gate. There have to be interactions with the world. It's a place of communication. You remember what Jesus said near the end of his earthly ministry in John 17? He said, we are called to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. So we need those, those access points, but we need to be careful about what we let in and what we, what we, how we have that interaction with the world. Gates are critical because they define what you let in. What ideas will, you, will enter your city gate of wisdom? What are the things you're going to consider wise counsel? What are you going to let in? Because there's so much mess out there. There's so many strange advisories. How will you have interaction and communication with the world? Will you have meetings with, with elders, you know, at the gate? You know, it's so important to have places. That's why we have these small groups. It's why we have the Wednesday night prime times. It's why we have the men's group and the women's group. All of those are so you can come around a few others and say, I got some, I got a question. <laughs> I need to ask about this. This is what's going on in my business or in my life, in my job, in my family, with my kids. And to get some wisdom, what are you going to let in? That, that's why gates are, are, are so critical. The truth is that we all need boundaries, borders, walls, and gates. And so does the church. The church is the place where everyone is welcome. And we need to really understand that. The church is where everyone is, is invited. They're welcome to come in, come in and hear you know, really, we need the church going out more, out more, but we need to know that people are welcome. I would say that the saddest thing that a, a pastor ever learns is that someone was made to feel unwelcome in the church for whatever reason. And people will come and say, well, I don't think that person really belongs in the church. Excuse me, because it's not your call, because this isn't your church. This is his church. He invited them and they need to hear. So whatever's going on or whatever you think is going on or however they look different or whatever, everyone is welcome. This is Jesus' church. You are his guest. And, 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 and that person is his guest. But we do have boundaries. We have boundaries about who can teach. We want to make sure there's sound teaching in accordance with the right uh, interpretation of the, of the word of God. We have boundaries about who can lead and serve. We have borders about who can become a member. We want to make sure that it's a person who is born again of the Spirit and is in agreement with sound doctrine. That, that's the membership because they are going to make the big, huge decisions from time to time in the church. We have walls about who we will marry. Uh, you know, I have people that will call and they'll leave a message and they'll say, uh, will you marry us on this date? Now, here's the answer. Come talk to me. Come talk to me. Because I can't say that I will marry you. Oh, well, why not? We've, we've got the date and we've got the place all set. I know. And the last thing you thought about was who will do this ceremony. <laughs> I, I get it. Okay, and it may not be that, that bad of a thing, but the thing is that I need to know what's going on. I talked to someone after the service last night and they said, well, do, isn't that a little bit judgmental that you're going to judge whether they should marry or not? No. I mean, they may marry anyway, but I need to know whether I can perform that ceremony. There's a lot of things that go into that. 
You may not know it. Uh, some of you, I think, know that you know, 25 years ago, our church became part of a covenant uh, called Marriage Savers. came out of studies that found that if you do premarital preparation and you have a waiting period of about 12 weeks, uh, marriages are more successful. And so we, we are part of that uh, with 100 other churches in Brevard County. I don't know that they all keep it, but we keep it. So you can't get married right away. We have counseling and premarital preparation that you go through. We do a testing process. Well, you mean that test is going to say whether I can get married or not? It tells us whether your marriage is likely to be successful and what you need to work on. I've met with couples, and it's not very often, but sometimes I meet, most of the time I meet with couples, and you guys are great. (laughs) We're so good. Let's work on some things here. But others that I talk to, uh, uh, a few times, I've had to say, you need to postpone. You're in such conflict that you need some therapy before you can really make this plan. So, so we have some boundaries and some borders in that regard. And we have gates of communication about that. Come talk to me. Come talk. You know, I, I really believe that the door sh- uh, of the church should not be slammed in someone's face. Come talk to me. And, and that's, you know, what we do all, all the time. Winter conference, prime time, Sunday school, all these things. So as we begin a new year and reflect upon these things, um, here, here are the questions that I, I want to raise. In what ways do I, do we need to better define our boundaries? Uh, do we need to clarify borders in our lives, uh, your separation from the world so that you don't look just like the world? Is it time to strengthen and fortify the walls to protect your family and who you are in Christ? And how do you need to attend to your gates, the ways that you engage with the world, the things that you let in? Now, I got ready to write a prayer about all of that, and then it occurred to me, Nehemiah already did that. (laughs) He wrote such a great prayer. Praying scripture is marvelous. You know, intercessors will love this passage of scripture. And this is not in your bulletin, but I've, uh, I've put this. It's going to be on our screen. I've just paraphrased the prayer of Nehemiah. It's a scripture. And it has part of it as a confession uh, that we, we as people in our nation, in our world, we have failed. And that we need to confess, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. So I want to invite you to this prayer uh, that comes from this first chapter in Nehemiah. Let's put it up. Will you join me? O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants We confess the sins of our land against you. We confess the sins of our homes and lives. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded through your servant Moses. We remember the word that you gave to your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Forgive us, we pray. We also remember your promise 
If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you have been outcast, I will gather you and bring you to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. We are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant us mercy in the sight of all these gathered. Father, we thank you that we can be your servants. And we also rejoice to know that you have called us not only servants, but you have called us friend. And we rejoice to know that we are the friends of God. And we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.